0: Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I'm your host, Tony, and today is the latest in our line of Sounds of the Classics episodes. This one is focused on the Super Nintendo, and it is volume one because there are a ton of Super Nintendo games out there, and a bunch of them have really good music. We had decided, uh, I guess, around a couple months ago, for every 10 episodes to be a little bit of a different kind of episode. So, this is one of those episodes that does not follow the traditional CGT formula. We're basically going to listen to a bunch of songs. I'm going to tell you why they mean something to me, why I chose them. And then, of course, we're going to talk about what those games are that are associated with the music and give you guys a little bit of a chance to guess what they are or what the music is before we get into the game and my personal discussion. We're going to get into that in just a couple minutes. But first, as is usual, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 70. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing. Provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an X account with the handle at classic gaming T I have an email address, which is classic gaming today at gmail.com and I have a discord server the link is in the show notes discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast we have a ton of fun out on discord we have weekly gaming challenges with prizes it is a ton of fun I highly encourage you all to check it out. I also encourage you to check out our Patreon. It is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. So if you want even more classic gaming today goodness, including a Patreon exclusive bi weekly podcast expansion pack, patreon.com slash classic gaming today is where it's at. I also want to give a shout out to our Pantheon patrons. They are ISO, Rich Senewald, David Morton, and Sam Twardowski. Thank you guys for supporting the show. Thank you all for supporting the show, whether you contribute monetarily or simply listen on a regular basis. I truly do appreciate all of the support. For anyone who may be new, welcome. This is usually the part of the podcast where I tell everybody about what the structure of a podcast episode is, with the history up front and then a pseudo review where we look at the graphics, sound, music, narrative, and story, if the game has one, playability and controls, and overall feel before we reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today, and we assign each game to one of several categories, with the Pantheon being at the top, the Golden Oldies being right after that, Mediocre Mentions a little bit above the bottom, and then the footnotes being the games that I have played so you don't have to but this is not a traditional CGT episode. It is a sounds of the classics episode, which means that the format and structure is entirely different. With this one, what we're going to do is I've selected a bunch of songs from the Super Nintendo, songs that mean something to me or songs that come from games that mean something to me. And I'm going to play each of those songs for you Give you an opportunity to guess what the song is no real contest here just keep track of the score your own points yourself but just a little bit of fun to guess what game these songs come from and then i will tell you why i chose that particular song we did this once before for episode 60 where it was the sounds of the classics nes volume one we are now moving into the 16-bit era with the super nintendo so without further ado i'm going to queue up our first song get your pads of paper ready to go to keep score yourself Here is our first song. I have to preface this by saying I am not a competitive fighting game kind of person. I enjoy competitive fighting games and usually I play them single player or at least today I play a lot of those games single player just to experience the story or to challenge myself against the computer. Back in the 90s, back when I was younger and lived with my brother and all that kind of stuff, I would definitely play some competitive fighting, but I wouldn't call myself competitive, so to speak. Meaning yeah, I did okay with these games, but I never really studied the combos all that well. For example, in Mortal Kombat, I didn't really have more than a couple fatalities memorized. I didn't really do the combo thing. I was one of those guys that just kind of bashed, bashed on the buttons and tried to see what happened. That being said, when Killer Instinct came out for the Super Nintendo, I was entirely floored and enamored with the experience. So Killer Instinct was a game developed by Rare Software, It was originally released in the arcades earlier in 1994, and here's the way Killer Instinct worked. At the time, there was such a proliferation of early 3D fighting games. You had games like Virtua Fighter, which were making waves, and around the mid-90s, I was still primarily a Nintendo fanboy. Everything Nintendo did, I wanted, needed, and loved. And that included things like the Power Glove and the Virtual Boy, which retrospectively, may not have been the most wise decisions or thought process on my part. Regardless, I loved everything that came out from Nintendo. When Killer Instinct came out in the arcades, it looked so shiny, so polished, and because it was associated with a Nintendo property, or at least a Nintendo development company, I knew I had to have it, and I knew that I would love it above all other fighting games. Remember, fanboy, not necessarily logical thought process. Anyway... I played the game and I did, in fact, enjoy it. Now, this didn't turn me into a competitive fighting gamer, but it did open the doors for me to be a little bit more open to the concept of actually learning combos and actually getting good with some of the characters that were in the game. It was originally supposed to come out on the Nintendo 64 and the Nintendo 64. Let me tell you about how much hype I had around the Nintendo 64, which I guess around this time was still known as Project Reality or Ultra 64. I'm getting the dates mixed up a little bit in my head, but I really wanted the Nintendo 64. It had such cutting edge 3D graphics. It was the future of gaming. The only problem was the Nintendo 64 was delayed and Killer Instinct couldn't come out on the Nintendo 64 because of that delay. But Rare did something unique. They took the arcade experience of Killer Instinct and they transformed it into a Super Nintendo title, Super Nintendo 16-bit system. How could Killer Instinct, with all of its advanced graphics and everything else, run on a Super Nintendo system? Well, the fact is that Rare is pretty much the masters of getting the Super Nintendo to do things that it wasn't otherwise intended to do, oftentimes through graphical trickery like what we saw when they did Donkey Kong Country where they made the game look really, really good, way higher quality graphics than what the Super Nintendo was actually capable of by effectively pre-rendering a bunch of sprites, stitching those sprites together on the screen, and then having the creation or the representation of a 3D-ish high-rendered kind of game, even though at the end of the day, everything was still based on sprite work. Killer Instinct, very similar kind of process they went through to get that running on the Super Nintendo, and I was hooked. I remember the day that I got Killer Instinct. It came with a bundled in CD of its audio. And this was one of those games where if you got a CD, or I guess I should take a step back, back in the early to mid 90s, game soundtracks were not really a thing. You didn't get CDs for games, typically speaking. I mean, occasionally you did. And there were some early efforts, especially in the RPG space, to start releasing soundtracks on CD. But for the most part, soundtracks on CD just weren't a thing. Killer Instinct came with a CD of its soundtrack. And of course, being the Nintendo fanboy I am, I had to put the CD into my CD-ROM drive and listen to it. And oh my God, it sounded amazing. This is something that captured my attention even before I played the actual game. The audio captured my attention. And because of that, the audio remains a permanent memory in my brain. I cannot dissociate the music for the game from Killer Instinct itself. It is a perfect combination of just action and intrigue and just falls to the wall fighting goodness. And I loved it. Never did become a competitive gamer as far as fighting games go, but that doesn't change the fact that Killer Instinct, for me, was my gateway into at least becoming a little bit more understanding and a little bit more focused on developing my own fighting game skills, and for that, I am definitely grateful. We are now going to move on to our second song, so get your pencils ready. See if you can guess this one. Mm-hmm. i say about super mario world undoubtedly at least in my opinion one of the best two-dimensional mario platformers ever released with its title only recently becoming a little bit contended with super mario wonder which released late last year but super mario world was the pack-in title for the super nintendo and i want to take you all back to that first day when i got my super nintendo system I remember clearly sitting in the family room of our home, waiting for my father to get home with the brand new 16-bit Super Nintendo console. He got home, I got the box, I ripped open the box, I got the console all hooked up to our TV, and I grabbed the pack-in title Super Mario World. Now, at this point, just like I talked about with Killer Instinct, I was a huge Nintendo fanboy. I had played every Mario game that ever came out. I was particularly fond of Super Mario Bros. 3, which... Who wasn't? Super Mario Bros. 3 was pretty much a landmark release in video game history. But with Super Mario World, this was a 16-bit title. And as anybody knows, more bits equals better games. Okay, that's not really true. But that was my thought process at the time. And 16 bits of Mario goodness. I couldn't wait to experience it. So I popped that game in the console and I was absolutely blown away. The quality of the graphics... The ridiculous sound and the music that sounded so, so much better than what we had on the Nintendo Entertainment System. This was truly next generation gaming, and I remember the specific moment in that game where I thought, oh my god, 16 bits is going to be something special. There's an early level in the game where you are climbing across a chain link fence and at the same time, there are enemies behind this chain link fence and you can actually punch a certain section of the fence and switch your viewpoint from holding on to the fence on the outside to holding on on the fence on the inside and actually facing the player, facing the screen of the television. That moment changed everything for me. I had never seen anything so graphically impressive before. And once I saw that, I knew that I was going to be in love with Super Mario World And in fact, beyond the graphics, I just really enjoyed Super Mario World as a Mario game. The expansiveness of the game world, the number of worlds and different levels that you can explore, the secret switch houses where you can actually change the way certain levels play by which switches you enable, the secret exits from different levels, everything combined to create an experience that for me was the quintessential Mario game and I remember simply loving it and just playing it from beginning to end as much as I could. Moving on from that one here is another early Super Nintendo release our third song coming up. Moving from one Super Nintendo launch title to another, this one is Pilot Wings. So, when I got my Super Nintendo, I did in fact get two games that day. One was the pack in title, Super Mario World, which we just talked about. The other was not a pack in title, but was supposed to be a revolutionary flight sim, and that was Pilot Wings. Now, let me talk to you a little bit about Pilot Wings. This game on a home console literally blew me away. There are, there are games up to this point that have kind of dabbled in 3D worlds. Now, certainly on the NES, that was a very difficult thing, but there were games that created pseudo-3D perspectives, especially games like driving games, where you'd be behind the car and you'd kind of see a view where you're driving into the screen, so to speak. It wasn't really 3D, but it created the perception of kind of a 3D effect. Pilot Wings. By the way, it was not truly 3D either. It used what the Super Nintendo called Mode 7 graphics, which was effectively a cool graphics trick that scaled different sprites and played with perspective to create what felt like a 3D environment. The thing is, Mode 7 did that 3D trickification better than any other technology on a home console up to that point, at least from my perspective. So when I fired up Pilot Wings for the first time and I started up my flight training school program, And I started to work my way through flying a biplane and using a rocket belt and hang gliding and skydiving. I remember thinking, oh, game consoles can do this. Games can actually create the perspective and the feeling of moving through a real three dimensional space. And I was blown away. Pilot Wings is one of those games that I spent a significant amount of time playing, not just to beat the game, because to beat the game is a relatively short experience. There's around eight flight training lessons, there are a couple of special missions in helicopters that you have to take on, and then after that, you've effectively beaten the game. I played it more so to try to continue to improve my own piloting skills. The game was insanely addictive to me, and I would play the game and try to get as high of a score total as I possibly could, whether that involved trying to get to the special bonus levels by landing on moving platforms or simply trying to change how I flew in different levels because of having to adjust for wind or weather or whatever else. I remember playing pilot wings consistently for well over a year after I first got the game. And that was for a couple of reasons. Number one, back around this time, there weren't nearly the same number of games that were released. So a lot of times you had a smaller library of games to choose from. And then when you had that library, you would play the individual games a lot more than what you might today, because today you have everything or people have everything available digitally. You have gigantic game libraries that you can get via a subscription fee. Back in the early 90s, that wasn't a thing. So the games that you did have, you played excessively. And secondly, beyond the fact that my overall gaming library was much smaller than it is today, Pilot Wings was simply a good game, and I loved experiencing that world, whether I landed successfully or maybe didn't pull my parachute in time and crashed into the landscape. It didn't matter. Every time I played that game, I played it with a smile on my face, and I enjoyed every single moment of it. We're going to move on to our next song. This is song number four. Let's see if you can guess this one. You know how last time I said that Wings created a 3D-like experience that I had never seen before, and that early Nintendo titles like racing games on the NES did create a 3D perspective, albeit not really 3D? Well, F-Zero took that concept of a racing game with that behind-the-car perspective and created a Super Nintendo version of a racing title with 3D-ish visuals and a behind-the-scene view, and I lapped it up, pun intended. F-Zero is a racing game, and similar to fighting games, I am not the biggest racing game player. I will say that back in the arcades, when you had actual racing cabinets where you could sit down and actually use steering wheels and gas pedals and brakes and things like that, I loved that experience, and I spent many hours playing games like the Tony USA and Cruisin' USA In the arcades along with my family and friends and it was just an amazing time and that that experience is something that i will always cherish but in the home i wasn't really a big racing game player now i would change over time especially as we started moving into more multiplayer centric racing titles in the home like with super mario kart oh you want to talk about competition between my brother and i that game we played a lot of competition in that one. But F Zero didn't have a two player kind of mode. It was a singular experience. So when I got F Zero, the reason I got it wasn't so much because it was a racing title, it was more so for the insane quality of the graphics at the time, which truly were revolutionary. Once again, this was another game that used Mode 7 graphics on the Super Nintendo to create the perspective of three-dimensional movement, and I it was just a really cool game because it moves at such a breakneck pace. I mean, it is so, so fast in comparison to any other racing game that came before it. Just to put it into perspective, the majority of racing games up to this point had been games that were focused in Reality, I'll say in quotes, in that you were driving a realistic or at least somewhat real kind of car like Ferraris or Lamborghinis or some other high-performance sports vehicle, but you would be limited by the speeds that those vehicles could typically approach. So think about on a racetrack kind of thing, you might be able to approach 200-ish miles per hour, I guess. So yes, very fast kind of movement, but remember, consoles up to this point didn't really have super speedy graphics. They could kind of create the illusion of super speedy graphics, but they were not quite as fast as what we would get in later years. Arcades, by contrast, did have much smoother graphics, but weren't necessarily all that speedy either. They created the sensation of speed, but that speed was restricted by reality. In F-Zero, you take on the role of a driver with a bunch of futuristic cars, and those cars can drive incredibly fast, insanely fast. And the sense of speed that you got from playing F-Zero was unlike anything I had ever experienced before. These futuristic supercars could drive hundreds of miles per hour. And because the game was designed such that the tracks were extended, meaning the tracks themselves were longer than what a traditional track would be, it created the sense of speed. And the speed of the cars actually moved much faster than other similar racing games. That's why they had to create the tracks as basically an oversized version that you would typically see in a regular video game racing game because the cars moved at such speed that you needed enough land in order to truly create that sense of speed. Otherwise, laps would be incredibly short and would be much more difficult to control. F-Zero did a ton of things right and almost single-handedly made me into more of a racing game aficionado in the home. Now, that translation wouldn't necessarily truly occur until much, much later when I started getting into the Forza series that's out on the Xbox. And obviously, even today, there are plenty of Forza games and modern Forza games that I absolutely love to play. F Zero. Is nothing like Forza, but it is the game that started me thinking about racing games in the home and not necessarily having to use an arcade cabinet with an actual wheel and stick shift and pedals and all that good stuff. F-Zero is one of my favorite games for the Super Nintendo because it was just so well-designed and so replayable. I would replay F-Zero so much to try to get better scores and lap times. And interestingly, we actually had F-Zero as one of our December monthly challenges uh, a couple of weeks ago or a few weeks ago at this point. And I remember we picked the very first stage or the very first track, Mute City. And the challenge was to try to get as short of a time or as quick of a time on that particular track as possible. And boy, did I play that game a lot. Even today, when I went back to it to play it and try to improve my time, I played it for a couple of hours without even thinking about it. And then I looked at the clock and I thought to myself, holy cow, did I just play that for a couple of hours? Yes, I did, because F Zero is that darn good and it absolutely deserves its spot on this list and it is a very important game to me because like I said it really did open my eyes to the potential for racing games in the home moving on we're going to get to our fifth song listen to this one see if you can guess it Mario Paint is a game, so to speak, unlike anything else that I had experienced up to the point when it was originally released. So I want to take you back again and talk about the Super Nintendo. The Super Nintendo really was something that was incredibly important to my formative video game years back in the 90s, right around the point of being in the, I guess, Almost early teenage years for me, I was around 10 ish or so when the Super Nintendo came out and when I started to really play it. And I just I think that was the console really that just completely set me up for a lifetime of gaming. Anyway, Mario Paint is completely different than almost any other title release for the system because it was not simply a game. Most of the time you get these games, you put it in the console, you hook up your controller, and you have one of any number of gameplay experiences available to you, oftentimes with some sort of victory condition in order to actually defeat or beat the game. Mario Paint, entirely different. Instead of plugging in your controller, it came with a mouse and a mouse pad, which I still own to this day. And that is the coolest thing, by the way, to actually have a mouse on your Super Nintendo, at least in my opinion. Anyway. You plug the game into the console, and this is not a game with a victory condition. It is all about creativity. And let me tell you a little bit about my artistic style and abilities. There are none. I am not an artistic kind of guy. I like music. I can play some music. I I like the piano and singing and all that kind of stuff. But as far as the act of physically creating artwork with my hands, no, that is not me. Regardless of that fact, Mario Paint gave me the opportunity to try to create something artistically. And boy, did I try. I tried and tried. And I don't know that I ever really got there, but it didn't matter because the experience was just so darn fun. I remember playing and once again, in quotes, playing this game and it was a lot of variety here. You could simply open up a blank canvas and just start drawing everywhere using the brushes that they include, or you could mess around in the pixel based sprite creator where they actually had a pixel grid and you could fill in different colors there and create sprites from it that you could then combine in various scenes. And I'm going to talk about that one in just a little bit, but I had a ton of fun in the sprite maker. Then you also had a music maker where you could have different musical instruments, sort of not really instruments in terms of picking a piano or a trumpet or whatever. This was all about picking different musical symbols or I guess Mushroom Kingdom symbols like fire flowers, and they would play something different when you would put them together. That section of the game, by the way, because I do have an interest in music and creating music, I spent a ton of time in. And then beyond that, there was also almost like a coloring book kind of section where you could fill in different sections of a coloring book page with different colors using the paint fill tool. And then finally was the fly swatter game where you used your mouse to move a fly swatter around a virtual screen, swiping at flies and trying to kill as many as you could. All of that, that entire creative package created something that for me was unlike anything I had played around with, and it actually did kindle a certain amount of artistic desire. For the first time, I was never really into drawing. I liked coloring when I was a young kid, but I was never really into drawing. Mario Paint made me think, well, maybe I could do something artistic. Maybe I could actually pursue that aspect of creativity. So I would sit there and I would try to draw with the mouse. Now, think about this though. I'm a kid when this comes out, right? So I'm sitting down and I am playing this game and I'm sitting on the floor of our family room. The mouse pad, which was a very hard plastic kind of mouse pad, sitting on the floor next to me. I'm sitting cross legged on the floor. My hand is on the mouse and I'm doing all these different things. It was an ergonomic disaster, but it didn't matter because when you're a kid, you're highly flexible and you can basically do whatever you want. If I tried that today, I would not be able to stand for three days afterwards. But regardless of that fact, I just remember sitting there and trying to draw different scenes, never really did a great job with the blank canvas kind of thing. Although, like I said, I did spend a lot of time in the Sprite Maker. And when you went into the Sprite Maker, now I do have to caveat this, actually, I never really got good at creating my own sprites, meaning thinking of an image in my head and then being able to translate that image in my head onto the grid on the screen. Now, I just didn't really have that artistic kind of ability. But what I did have was a strategy guide and I was able to look in that and see all of the different sprites that actual artistic people were able to create and actual sprites from the real games around there. And I remember taking the Street Fighter 2 sprites. This I remember very clearly. I took Zangief's sprites from the strategy guide and I recreated Zangief in all of his big, beefy, muscular glory. And I just Put it on the screen. And like I said, when you created these sprites, you could create multiples of them and then you could stamp them into the canvas. So you basically could build different scenes. I built Zangief and I thought I was I basically thought I was Picasso by the time it was done because I looked at it. And I, I looked at it and I said, oh, my God, that's actually Zangief. I did that. Now, granted, I didn't really do it because I followed a guide and basically all I did was make sure that each of the sprites were lined up together after I created them on the pixel sprite image generator thingy or whatever you want to call it. But outside of that, it was just so much fun. Even more fun for me was the music creator, where I would sit for hours and try to create and compose my own music. This was another one where I also was able to use the strategy guide to recreate some Nintendo classic tunes, just like the Legend of Zelda overworld theme, which I thought was amazing. I couldn't believe that I was able to, quote unquote, compose the Legend of Zelda theme in another Nintendo game. And I was absolutely blown away. I spent probably more time than I should have messing around with this music generator program. But I will say that my efforts here almost directly aligned with my desire to learn more about MIDI-based music in computers. MIDI being musical instrument digital interface. The actual act of creating music digitally in computers and using sampled bass sounds or synthesis to create actual songs. I got really into MIDI, by the way, and that actually might be a future Sounds of the Classics episode at some point because I loved MIDI music of all sorts of games. Anyway, Mario Paint was probably the game that started me down that path and really got me involved in musical generation with a computer, and it was just so, so fun. But perhaps the game or the portion of this product, I should say, not really game, the portion of this product that I spent most likely the most time on was the fly swatter game. And it was super simple. I mean, this was basically the definition of an arcade styled experience where your only goal was to try to swat as many flies as possible, and every level they would get a little bit faster and be a little bit more difficult to actually swap them. I played this game continuously for hours at a time. I would play this thing constantly. I got really good at it, by the way, because when you play anything for hours and hours, you do eventually develop a certain amount of skill. But it was just one of those games where... It was so simple, yet so addicting, that I just lost so much time just playing that. So you have the creative aspect of Mario Paint, which was amazing. And then you had this little bundled-on arcade experience, which was effectively just a way to teach you how to use the mouse, or at least give you an opportunity to use the mouse in a little bit more of a meaningful way, so to speak, or at least more action-oriented than what you would be getting, doing, or using the creative portion of the title And it was great. It was kind of like the perfect time waster game. And if there was a similar game released for PC today, I'm sure there was something out there, just some simple arcade game where you just swat a bunch of stuff on your screen. But if it was something like that, I bet you that tons of people would continue to waste time even today. Anyway, Mario Paint, I already spoke a lot about that one. It is definitely one of those titles that will always stick with me. We're going to move on to our next song. So see if you can guess what this one is from. I'm going to venture a guess and say that if you owned a Super Nintendo back in the early to mid 90s, you will recognize this song because it comes from The Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past. I got to talk to you guys about The Legend of Zelda because I have always loved Zelda games. Now, the point that this game came out, this was, I guess, the fourth game in the series i'm trying to remember when links awakening came out on the game boy versus when a link to the past came out but it's still very early in the legend of zelda series for me because i did not play links awakening on the game boy before i played a link to the past so just my own personal history with zelda i played the original the legend of zelda a ton on the nes i absolutely loved it did an entire episode about it uh, last year so definitely go check that out if you want But then I moved into The Legend of Zelda 2, and it was an entirely different experience. It wasn't a tops down kind of view with a huge, expansive world full of interconnected screens to explore. It was a side view kind of game, had some light RPG elements, and it even had an overworld map that you could navigate through. It was something entirely different than the original game. So for me at this point, The Legend of Zelda had not yet had a codified form to it. It was one of those things where, because there were only two games I had been exposed to, I didn't know what The Legend of Zelda was going to be. Would it be the same style as Legend of Zelda, the first one? Would it be the same style as the second one? Would it be something entirely different? I had no idea. All I knew is that A Link to the Past, based on the images that I saw looked like the way the original Legend of Zelda looked in my head imaginatively. They had finally put it down on the screen because the quality of the 16-bit graphics just made the game pop so much more than what the NES was capable of. So I knew I had to have this game. So I got it. I put it in my system. And from the very beginning of the experience, I was hooked. I don't think I played another game Before I beat The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past, meaning I sat down, I started playing it. And from that point on, I don't think another game entered my console until A Link to the Past was beaten. It was that good. The world was so large and it wasn't just a single world. There were two worlds, which blew my mind. How could a game be so expansive? And I love the concept, just generally speaking, independent of games or whatever. I love the concept of experiencing a similar environment, but in different timelines or different portions of time or dimensions or whatever. I love that concept or also related. I love the concept of some sort of apocalyptic event changing the land and then you have to re-explore the newly changed land under whatever new circumstances there were. We'll talk about another game that does something very similar to that in a little bit, but The fact that The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past had such an expansive game world, had so many dungeons, had so many different puzzle elements, so many items to use. It was just the perfect Legend of Zelda experience, and I loved it. From that point on, in my head, The Legend of Zelda was A Link to the Past, meaning that was the game that, for me, basically made it so that The Legend of Zelda would always be a part of my gaming memory. Sure, the NES titles were good and I loved both of them for their own reasons, but A Link to the Past did something entirely different and it captured my imagination in a way that no other game had up to that point. Sure, there were other really good games that I played. A Link to the Past, though, will always be one of my favorite games of all time. It is that good. I I. I'm just gushing over this game because there's no other way to say it. If you haven't played a link to the past, now look, this is not a link to the past episode, so I'm not trying to sell you on it per se, but if you haven't played it, you have to play it. It is one of the best games of all time. And as a child experiencing that title, and I had a strategy guide, which I would refer to. So it wasn't like I was completely playing in the dark, so to speak. But a lot of the game I did play without assistance or without a strategy guide. But with the strategy guide, you could unlock and uncover so many different secrets that it it really did enhance the act and feeling of playing the game. A Legend of Zelda, or The Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past, was just a remarkable achievement in video games of the time. And the fact that it was on my 16 bit Super Nintendo meant that I knew I was going to have a good time for hours upon hours. And in fact, I did. Moving on to our next song. See if you could guess this one. talked about a few different beat-em-up titles over the last one and a half years or so one we have not touched upon though is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 4 Turtles in Time now this one I have incredibly fond and personal memories of I remember going to the arcades with my brother and we would a lot of times we would play a ton of beat-em-up titles in the arcade between X-Men and the Simpsons and just all these other titles We would play a ton of beat-em-ups because they were highly cooperative. You could play for a fairly long time on a single quarter, assuming you got good enough at the game to to actually be able to make that quarter last, and we just had a blast doing that, and sometimes we would play with other people because some beat-em-ups had four players, some had two, whatever. It was all a good time. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 4, Turtles in Time, was one of our favorites, and I still remember going to a restaurant called Chi-Chi's, which was a Mexican restaurant that I don't believe is still in existence, though they may still actually offer their salsa in grocery stores. Anyway, outside of that, we would go to this restaurant called Chi-Chi's and we would go fairly frequently because my family and I, we all enjoyed the food that they made. We would go there and Chi-Chi's would oftentimes have different arcade games at the front of their restaurant and they would kind of rotate it based on what arcade game was popular at the time. That was where I first experienced NBA Jam. They had Mortal Kombat there for a period of time, Mortal Kombat 2, which was amazing. And they also had Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 4 Turtles in Time. And it was kind of tucked into this back section. So you would enter the restaurant and the the check-in counter was right in front of you, effectively. If you made a hard U-turn left, there was a little alcove, just the perfect size for an arcade game. This is where they would keep a lot of their arcade titles. And this is where Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 4, Turtles in Time, was kept. The very first moment that my brother and I saw that game, we knew we had to play it. So when we got there, when we got to the restaurant. I remember thinking to myself, oh, I hope there's a wait. I hope there's a wait. I hope there's a wait because we really wanted to play the game. And luckily enough, there was a wait because there always were waits back then. It was like a 20 to 30 minute wait. So, we had an opportunity to try Turtles in Time, and we were hooked. That was such a good game. And this was also a little bit more, I'll say, influential for us because we both really enjoyed Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the cartoon. My brother was a Big Ninja Turtles fan. He had all the different figures. I had some figures, but most of the time I was really a collector of G.I. Joe's. He was really more into Ninja Turtles. Of course, we would do awesome crossover battles all the time because that's what you do when you have all these different action figures from different universes. It was just (laughs) oh, it was really fun. Anyway, Turtles in Time was an amazing arcade experience that we had never really had before. It was so well designed. It was just so well put together. The fact that you were time traveling and going through different times and fighting all of the different turtle bosses and bad guys that were in the cartoon, it just made it insanely fun. So when Turtles in Time got the Super Nintendo port treatment, you got to believe we were there and signed up for it day one and it did not disappoint We didn't have to go to the arcade anymore to play this game, and we would sit in the family room next to each other, holding our respective controllers in hand, and we would play the game frequently and constantly, and even if we beat it, next day, we'd play it again, because it was that darn good. I was always Donatello, by the way, because I thought that he was a little bit more kind of intelligent, creative, and I always considered myself to be more intelligent and creative, My brother was always Leonardo because he was the leader of the turtles, and I think he just really liked swords. But regardless of that fact, those were our characters. We would play around occasionally with Raphael and Michelangelo. I liked Michelangelo because of the nunchucks, which really did have some interesting fight mechanics, and it just felt cool to play with. I don't know that we ever really played Raphael all that much. For some reason, the size just didn't really do it for us. Anyway, Donatello for me, Leonardo for him, we would play the game so, so, so much. And I just remember losing hours and days to that game. And you know a game is good when you play it even after you've beaten it. You play it multiple times, not necessarily to get better at it, just because you like it so much. There are games where after you beat it, you want to play it again because you want to improve your skill or you want to improve your time or something like that. With Turtles in Time, it wasn't about that. It was simply about having fun, and the game was so fun that we could not pull ourselves away from it. It is one of those titles that will always remain in my head, and this is one where they actually have an arcade one-up release of the original arcade version available that I kind of want to get. I know it was released a couple years ago and now probably has incredibly inflated prices, but that's one of those games where... It is so important to me from my personal perspective, and it brings back such fond memories that I just want to continue to experience that forever. It wouldn't be the same without the multiplayer aspect because, like I said, the whole multiplayer aspect is really one of the driving forces behind why I have such a personal attachment to that game. But regardless, it is still an amazing game, and the memories I have of playing that game will undoubtedly live forever. We're going to move on to our next song now. Let's see what this one's from. venture a guess and say that this one might be a little bit more obscure than what some of the other entries in our list is so this song comes from how's hole-in-one goth now i have said in prior episodes and i've talked in prior episodes about how video games really were for families and groups back in the early 90s a lot of times video games were played by kids and It was often marketed as children's entertainment. Whether or not it truly was simply children's entertainment, that was the concept and perception amongst a large portion of the parental population that was buying these games for their kids. There were a few games, at least for me, that transcended that gap between the whole it's for the children and oh, hey, this is actually a really fun kind of experience. I've talked about a couple of those experiences in the past, a couple of those games in the past where my parents or my aunt would actually get engaged or even my grandmother, in some instances, would actually play a game, which was not the typical way that they would engage with us because they weren't really game players. But there were a few games that that transcended that chasm hole in one golf was one of them. So this is a golf game. It's a very good golf game. By the way, I haven't played it in a while, but this was an amazing golf game for the time. And I have so many fond memories, not just of playing the game because I would play this game so much and try to improve my scores on every single course as much as I could. But the real reason I remember this game is because it became a family kind of thing. We all loved playing hole-in-one golf. And in fact, I remember... Waking up early in the mornings, by, let's say, 6 a.m., which for me, I'm, an, I'm a morning person anyway, so I'm up regardless. I've always been a morning person. Even today, I wake up well before 6 a.m. usually. But my parents and my family, eh, they're not so much morning people. So when we would be younger, when my brother and I were younger, we would often wake up early and we'd want to play something. Well, we would occasionally wake everybody up. At like 6 a.m., and we would say, Hey, you wanna have a hole in one tournament? And you know what? They actually said yes. (laughs) They actually got up with us, and we would play hole in one golf early, early, early in the morning. They'd have their coffee, and we'd have whatever we were drinking. Maybe it was like a hot tea with lemon or something like that. We felt like big shots because it was just like a fun family thing. And we would play that game so much. I remember my father was interested in real golf and he would occasionally go real golfing with different people from his firm or clients or things like that. So I always thought that he knew golf way better than I did. So it was always fun to play a golf game with him because he actually had experienced the real thing. Up to this point, I had really only experienced miniature golf, which is still really fun, but is not the same as driving a ball down the fairway a couple hundred yards. Anyway, hole in one golf, was amazing and i have such fond recollections of playing that with my family and trying to improve our respective scores and doing little mini tournaments i got pretty good at the game and i'm trying to remember and unfortunately i can't remember who the best player was out of our family group i'm going to say it was me because this is my podcast and i can say whatever the heck i want But I really do think it was, (laughs) I mean, putting aside the bias, I really do think it was me that was primarily the winner there because I learned all of the different gameplay mechanics. I didn't really care about the rules of golf per se around this time. What I cared about was that my thumb was able to hit the power meter and the accuracy meter fast enough and accurately enough that I was able to drive the ball and hit the ball better than anybody else I was playing with. I had so much fun with this game. Now, I don't know how broadly known this game is. It kind of is amazing to me that there are some games that have such a special place in each of our respective game playing careers, but they may not be as well known or as well experienced outside of that small circle of people that might have played that game and had it be a formative memory for you in particular or for me. If you haven't played hole-in-one golf and you enjoy golf games, I really think you should give it a go because it is so much better than any of the golf games on the NES that had preceded it. This was the first golf game that combined higher quality visuals with a really interesting control scheme, and if you enjoy golf at all, I can't imagine you playing this one and not having some fun. Whether you play it single-player or multiplayer, it doesn't matter because I played a ton of single-player on hole-in-one as well. It wasn't just a family thing. That's the reason why I have so many memories about it is because of the family experience. But I played the game just by myself a lot as well because it was just a quality game and I truly, truly, truly enjoyed it. So I would definitely recommend you guys try it out as well. If you have even a passing interest in golf games, it's definitely something that's worth your time. Moving on to our next song. This is song number nine. See if you can guess what game this one's from. From a nostalgia perspective, Final Fantasy 3, and I know it's really Final Fantasy 6, but Final Fantasy 3, as I knew it back in my Super Nintendo playing days when I was a kid, is the best RPG ever created and most likely one of the best games ever created in all time. Historical perspective, just amazing. Now, I have not played Final Fantasy VI in a very long time, but I am not going to play it just yet because I want my nostalgia to stick around, at least for this episode. So let me tell you all about Final Fantasy VI. This is another one where my brother and I would play the game together. And whenever we would play a game that had any sort of narrative or dialogue or anything like that, we would always play together and we would always take on the parts of different characters. I think I've mentioned this before. We did this with adventure games where my brother primarily controlled LucasArts games. I controlled the Sierra games. We would all provide the voices for the characters. It wasn't just like we sat around staring at the screen, reading the text. We would actually act out the individual scenes. And honestly,. Some of it is incredibly embarrassing because there were some characters we created with like these really high pitched voices and we created a whole universe around this concept. We had characters that persisted from game to game and took up these different roles. It was incredibly creative, but it was also something that could only have been created by a couple of kids that knew each other so well and spent so much time with each other that they could literally finish each other's sandwiches uh, sentences. But outside of that, Final Fantasy VI. When we sat down to play it, and actually I should take a step back, we would routinely rent games from our local video game rental store, which was called Double Features. Yes, there was Blockbuster Video and Hollywood Video and all those kind of things. But from my perspective, Double Features was the video game rental store for us. It was a mom-and-pop-owned store. It was relatively close to where we lived. We would go in there, and we would pick up the hang tags. They had these little plastic hang tags in front of each of the game boxes, and oftentimes they would have a couple of different copies of each game. So we'd pick up a hang tag, we'd go up to the counter, we would get the game, we'd rent it for the weekend, we'd go back and play it. Final Fantasy VI and Final Fantasy II, actually, that preceded it, uh, we had rented these games fairly frequently and we really enjoyed them and the thing was we would always get to a certain point we'd spend hours playing these games over the weekend and maybe we'd re-rent them for a couple days but invariably we would have to return the game and therefore would have the risk of losing our save progress before we would rent it again eventually we decided to purchase final fantasy 6 because it was that darn good and we played that game so much and actually i have a very If anybody has ever lost a save game, I have a heartbreaking story to tell you right now. We had played Final Fantasy VI, and this was one of those games where you could grind for experience and you could grind to level up your characters and your espers, which were the magical abilities or the magical creatures in this particular version of Final Fantasy. You could grind them out to get them to be higher level, have higher level skills that you have available to you and basically make it so that you'd be all powerful to be able to rip through the game. Well, we did that. And we had a save file that probably had, oh, I don't know, maybe 45, 50 hours on it, which for the time was a crazy value. This is before the time where you have RPGs that could take 100 hours plus to play through Final Fantasy VI. We had grinded so much to get so much experience there. And then one day somehow, and I don't know how it happened, we lost that save file. I think that somebody, and I can't remember who, I don't remember if it was somebody like if I went from my brother or me or somebody else, but somehow we hit new game and overwrote our save file and we lost 45, 46 hours of gameplay and grinding completely out the window. Now, at that point, we had already beaten the game. We were just trying to grind and try to get an even more powerful kind of save file. And we lost it. And I remember feeling devastated at losing all of that progress. We would shelve the game for months after that because it was literally like a post-traumatic event kind of thing because there's all that time spent all that time of effectively lost felt awful. We did eventually go back to it. We actually created a new save. We went through the game again. We re-grinded everything to get even more powerful than what we were, and we were able to be content in the fact that we had all of that experience and we were able to play through it again. Final Fantasy VI is undoubtedly one of the best RPGs of all time. We would often kind of compete between Final Fantasy VI and Chrono Trigger, As far as which one was better. I don't recall if we ever came to a foregone conclusion. Or if we had different sides. I think my brother was more into Chrono Trigger or thought Chrono Trigger was better. I always thought Final Fantasy VI with its massive character list and cast and all the different side quests and things like that, I always thought that was better. I played Chrono Trigger for this podcast a little bit over a year ago, and I found it to be an absolutely masterpiece level game. In fact, it was the top-ranked Pantheon game from the first year of this podcast. It is that darn good. I want to revisit Final Fantasy VI, and I want to experience that again because from my perspective, my nostalgia is telling me Final Fantasy six is one of the best games of all time. And even beyond the personal perspective of playing this alongside my brother, I absolutely enjoyed the experience. I loved it. And I want to experience that again. Not quite yet because it's quite the commitment to get into, but I do want to play that again. It will undoubtedly make its way into this podcast in the future. Anyway, we are going to move into our final song for the day. Let's see if you can guess what this one is from. Remember how I said that Killer Instinct was the game that actually made me try to become better at fighting games? Well, Street Fighter 2, The World Warrior, was before that, and I just had a ton of fun mashing buttons in that one. I did not try to get better at that game. I simply wanted to experience the joy of playing with the cartoon-like graphics and all the characters, and out of all of them, when I looked through it, because Street Fighter 2 is designed in a way where each of the characters comes from a different geographic region. And as I looked through the character list, of course, being from the United States, I had to center on the man from the USA, which was Guile. Oh my goodness, did I enjoy playing the game, playing Guile. I thought that he was this really cool army looking dude that could just kick butt everywhere. And I remember, because I played Guile so much, I remember the music from his stage like it was yesterday. Now, here's the thing with Giles stage music. It has become an Internet meme over the years. And the common prevailing thought is that Giles music can pretty much go with any situation. And if you go out on YouTube and you type in Giles theme situation or something like that, you will see Giles theme applied to all sorts of different situations whether it's fighting scenes in movies there's even a scene from the fresh prince of bel-air where uncle phil is playing pool and they put guile's theme in the background and it works insanely well guile's theme really does go with everything but i remember the theme before it became an internet meme because street fighter 2 was one of those other games where it was just fun to play i never became competitive at it I never really took the time to get good, so to speak, at the game, but it didn't matter because it was fun standing in the arcades, playing with my brother or playing with other people was just a blast. And when it came home, once again, when Street Fighter 2 came home from the arcade to the Super Nintendo and it was a relatively close arcade like experience on the Super Nintendo, I remember thinking I could literally enjoy this game forever and In fact, I did because, well, maybe not truly forever, but I enjoyed it for months playing that game and just being competitive, so to speak, with my brother and playing the different characters and trying to beat each other and beat the game and all that kind of stuff. Once again, I was really a button masher kind of guy back then, but it didn't matter because the entire experience was awesome. Guile scene was awesome. And I just remember loving it so, so much. And honestly, I've loved... Every single song that we've talked about, every game we've talked about, and music for me is just one of those inextricable things that come along with games and. Games and music go together hand in hand. The music in a good game will often enhance the experience more than just the gameplay provides. And I think that music is such an important medium, not just in games, but just across culture and in movies and television and just listening by itself. Music is incredibly important. It's incredibly powerful. And for me, when I think about my prior gaming experiences, a lot of times the first memory that pops into my head is the music associated with the game. And if that doesn't show how important music is to the interactive medium that we all enjoy, I don't know what does. <laughs> That was our episode focusing on Sounds of the Classics, Super Nintendo, Volume 1. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an X account with the handle at Classic Gaming T. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. And we have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. We have a ton of fun out on Discord. I highly encourage you all to check it out. I also encourage you all to check out our Patreon. It is Patreon.com slash ClassicGamingToday. So if you want even more Classic Gaming Today goodness, Patreon.com slash ClassicGamingToday is where it's at. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on Kirby's Dreamland, so feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not so fond memories of that experience. At the same time, I recognize you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast services, and if you would feel so inclined, it would be great if you could leave me a review. This is not about bolstering star counts, it's not about trying to harvest a ton of five-star ratings, though if that happens, awesome, it means we're doing something right. No, what it's really all about is trying to get the feedback necessary to continue to make this the best possible podcast I can. We get new listeners every single day, which is awesome. I want to continue to deliver the content you all want to listen to. The only way to do that is to gather feedback and make sure that this is the best possible podcast I can make. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Kirby's Dreamland. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone.